Okay. Uh, so uh, God calls Abraham, promises him a land, a seed, and a blessing. And throughout the Old Testament, we see those things begin to develop. And then we come 430 years later to Moses. We have the, the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinaitic Covenant, the covenant made at Sinai, and that is for the purpose now of providing a place. You know, Egypt became like an incubator where uh, this family, this clan, would grow into a nation. When they left Egypt, they were a massive number of people that left Egypt and headed to the Promised Land. And, and so the Mosaic Covenant really is organizing them together to move from simply a tribe now to be a nation. The last time we talked about, uh, or the last couple of times, uh, the promised seed, David's greater son. You remember Genesis, I mean Matthew 1.1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Those are the three central characters, Abraham and then David. Second Samuel 7, we have this wonderful section about the promise, the covenant that he made with David. And then last week we looked at the great divorce of how uh, both uh, the north and the south, Judah and Israel, constant failures. And I want to uh, uh, begin by reading the last chapter of the Old Testament. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read uh, Malachi chapter 4, because that sets us up for where we're going. Surely the day is coming, uh, surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day is coming, uh, and the, that day that is coming, let me put my glasses on, sorry. Uh, somehow my Bible keeps shrinking. I don't know if any of you have that problem. Um, and, uh, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Love that statement. Son of Righteousness will rise, and you'll go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you'll trample down the wicked, and there'll be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. Remember we looked at that with uh, 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 Exodus and Deuteronomy. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now that's the last word they had, 400 silent years, that there was no prophet, no word from God to the people of God. And then we come to the New Testament. God shows up. The Messiah arrives. So that's where we're going today. We're going to look at this. So much to say here, and, and because many of the passages are familiar, I'm not going to be turning to a lot of them. I'm just going to be reminding you of what they are. If we think about this, the incarnation, what does that word mean? That's a long technical term. What does it mean? What does carnal mean? It means flesh. In Carnal, incarnate, means 
in flesh. And it's a way of talking about how the eternal Son of God took on human flesh. And we're going to look at that today. Uh, one uh, translation says uh, in John uh, 1, where it says, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. One of the translations says, God moved into our neighborhood. I love that. He not only moved into our neighborhood, but he became one of us. That's what this is all about. And the incarnation, think about this, the author, the eternal God, writes himself into the drama. You know, Shakespeare couldn't do that, or any of the modern playwrights can't do that, but God actually comes into the drama that he is staging, directing, and has written. And so everything has been moving to this point. You'll go back to the, the, the promises in the old. We're going to look at those in a minute. What happens? God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, takes on human flesh and becomes theanthropos. Now, look at that word, that word again. Now, we don't use it a lot. There are two parts to that. What is anthropos? What does that mean? Man, anthropology is the study of man. Theos is the word for God. So, theanthropos is God-man. And one of the greatest mysteries, the greatest miracles, is God being man. Now, how do you sort that out? It's caused all kinds of struggles down through the ages. And I, I want you to look at the promises that, that we've been kind of walking through the Old Testament. And I want you to see the anticipation. In uh, uh, Genesis 49, I love this, uh, this particular prophecy in verses 8 through 12. Judah... Your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Now, I didn't watch the coronation of Prince Charles, now King Charles, uh, but the scepter is a central part of that. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. We could take the rest of the class just looking at that verse. But here's a promise all the way back when Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, he says the scepter is going to remain in Judah. And the scepter is indicative of a king. Look at the second passage. Uh, this is one of my favorite sections in Numbers. Uh, you remember Balaam? Uh, Balaam is the guy that was hired by Balak to come and put a curse on uh, Israel as they were coming into the land. And uh, instead of cursing them, he blessed them. If you've never read this section carefully... Well, you've you got to go back and see it. I'm going to read just a couple of verses. Uh, in verse 17 of Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. Who's he talking about? The Messiah. I see him, but he's not here yet. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. To remind you about what Jacob said about Judah, the scepter. star will come out of Jacob. 
A scepter will arise out of Israel. He'll crush the foreheads of Moab. That's Balak's people that he's hiring him to curse. And he says, now he's going to rise and he's going to crush the skulls. Edom will be conquered. Seir's enemy will be conquered. But Israel will go strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Wow, that is strong. You know, that's coming thousands of years before. Do you have your Bible? Go with me to Isaiah. Again, each of these passages, we could spend the entire time in it. We're just going to look at them quickly. Isaiah 7.14, most of you can quote this passage, I'm sure. Here's what it says. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The king didn't want a sign. He already had his mind made up. He was going to make a, a treaty with the surrounding nations. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means what? God with us. We see that in the New Testament. Look at chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. For those who are in distress in the past, he humbled in the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. How often is Jesus referred to as the light of the world? He himself calls himself that. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at a harvest. Men rejoice when dividing plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. The warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Now here it is. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. Wow. Does he say a lot there? Uh, he is going to rise, and he is going to rule on David's throne. You see how it's building? Abraham, David. Now, the promise is, Isaiah says, one is coming who's going to fill that role. These are the prophetic promises of the Old Testament. It keeps pointing forward. It keeps looking forward and giving this sense of hope. At times, it was cloudier and murkier than it was at other times, but it was always there. So we come to the New Testament. How do we get through this? I don't know, but we're going to try. Luke 1. Uh, I'm reading right now uh, through uh, the Gospel of Luke and my Bible reading. In fact, uh, tomorrow I think I finish it. I'm in chapter 23. I read earlier this morning. be in chapter 24. You remember Zacharias and Elizabeth, this old couple, uh, have no children. Zacharias is chosen to uh, go in and offer the incense, and while he's there, the angel tells them they're going to have a son. And he says, what? You know, come again? Uh, and he says, because you didn't believe me, you're not going to talk. 
And so for the nine months that uh, uh, she is pregnant before the child is born, Zacharias can't say anything. And what does God do? Uh, let me ask you one question. What's his name? Uh, McMahon. Uh, Ed McMahon. What was he known for? What was his great accomplishment in life? Here's Johnny. He made a fortune by saying two words. You know, here's Johnny. Well, John the Baptist, he's being raised up to say, here's Jesus. He was the forerunner. He's the one that's going to prepare the way. We can't emphasize enough how central John the Baptist is. Again, we need a whole lesson on John the Baptist. He is an amazing character. But his birth is unique, and Elizabeth gives birth to him, and then when he's born, Zachariah's tongue is loosed, and you have uh, uh, this, this wonderful praise to God. And in fact, uh, many of these uh, hymns in Luke have Latin names. Anybody know uh, the, uh, when we read in Luke 1 where Zacharias begins and it says, Praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's come and redeemed his people. What's that called? Anybody know? It's called the Benedictus. Uh, and it, it's the sense of praising God for what he's done. And then earlier, you have the angel coming to Mary. Anybody know what this is called? My soul doth magnify the Lord. The Magnificat, okay? And so in Luke, we have the Magnificat. And, and what does the angel say to Mary? Uh, let me go back to verse, uh, what are we, verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Sound like anything we just read from Isaiah, anything going back to Genesis and to Numbers with Balaam. That is the message throughout. And so Mary is told she is going to have this child, and, and then she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, I love this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she was said to be barren as in her sixth month for nothing is impossible with God. I love what she says. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And so Mary consents to this, and you have this amazing account of this young girl who conceives the very Son of God, Theanthropos, in her womb. You go back to Matthew 1. Joseph is kind of left out of some of the information of this. You know, he's, he's engaged uh, to be married, it was a little stronger, betrothal was stronger than our engagement. 
And Mary begins to fill out a little bit, and it becomes obvious that she's pregnant. He knows he's not the father. He decides he's got to find a way. He loves her. He's got to put her away secretly. And you remember what happens? An angel shows up and says, don't do it. You know, this child that's born, you know, is my doing. You take Mary as your wife, and then you have one of the great sections in Matthew 1 as he receives Mary. You go to Matthew 2, and you have Herod and the Magi. You remember that? You know, these Magi show up and say, where is, you know, you, you don't want to go to the king, especially Herod, and say, okay, where is this new king that was born? Okay, not healthy. And uh, goes to Herod and says, where is it? We saw his star. And I, I've said before, when I was born, there were about 20 people that were excited about that. My parents sent out, you know, uh, announcements to various people. But there were no angels showing up. There were no magi. There were no stars in the sky. There's something about what's happening. See, God is dramatic. He doesn't just slip in. He does it so you can't miss it. He's putting this in a dramatic uh, uh, landscape in order that no one can miss it, and the Magi didn't. And they found, uh, by God's direction, the star appeared again, and they presented their gifts, and they worshipped him, and they beat it out of town before Herod caught up with them. And you know the story. Herod, you know, killed all the children in the area uh, that it was uh, because he didn't want to use somebody to challenge him on the throne. Luke chapter 2, uh, the shepherds minding their business out in the field watching what happens. They have this messenger from God says today in the city of David. Isn't that interesting? See how David goes through. In the city of David, uh, a child is born, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And you have this great Gloria in excelsa Deus. This is another one of the hymns. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men. The shepherds go in and see this thing and they go tell everybody, here's what's happening. And then, you remember in Luke chapter 2, Simeon and Anna Simeon was a godly man that's waiting for the consolation of Israel, for the consummation of all of God's promises. And God had promised him, you're not going to die until you see my Messiah. And he comes to him, and when they bring Jesus in uh, to the temple, and God says, that's the one, and he takes him in his arms. Now here's the one, you get a $50 prize, uh, Mike is going to pay this, he promised this before. Anybody that can get the right name for the hymn, Now let us thy servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What's the hymn? You all know it. It's the Nunc Dimittis. Okay, I knew you were safe. You, you can put your money away. <laughs> uh, and, and again, it, it's, it's Simeon now just praising God. Then there's Anna, this widow, been praying in the temple, been a widow for, what, uh, 80 years? I can't remember the details of that. And, and she takes Jesus up in her arms and praises God. Now, when you put the pieces together, the angels coming to Mary, to Elizabeth, uh, uh, Zacharias, uh, John the Baptist, uh, 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 Joseph himself, uh, the Magi, it, it's an indication that something big is happening. 
Now remember, 400 years, silence, nothing from God, and suddenly all of these things are beginning to happen. It's because the Son of God uh, is moved into our neighborhood and tabernacled among us. I don't know how to put those in words that are strong enough and meaningful enough. Uh, and when we talk about the incarnation, and I'll say, uh, you may, I sent a note out yesterday to everybody giving you some additional resources because we can't begin to look at this. Uh, for those that want to go further, you can. Uh, for those that don't, you can at least have the papers and pass them to your friends and impress them, and they'll think you're, you know, you're really smart. But when we talk about the incarnation, there are five things that are critical. Okay? The first is the deity of Jesus Christ. Deity means what? God. He's God. Okay? And so this child that's born of the Virgin Mary that the shepherds saw, that the Magi worshipped, that Herod's trying to kill, is God. Now... How do you put those two together? That becomes a problem. But it's not just God. God appeared many times through the Old Testament, but now God, as a human being, has a body and a soul, a human body, a human soul. So there is the deity and there is the humanity. And then we played before class began the hypostatic union. How do you put these two together? And so in the early church, there was a constant battle of trying to decide what does that look like, and so there would be affirmations of denials of each of these things. But the hypostatic union is how does God and man become one? Unipersonality is they're not two people. It's not Jesus God talking to Jesus man back and forth having a conversation. The unipersonality of Christ is it is one person that's there. And then the most difficult is the kenosis, uh, the kenotic problem from uh, Philippians. He humbled himself and took on the nature of a man, of a servant. And there's a lot of wrong thinking about the kenosis as though Jesus took away something about his deity. No, he never stopped being God. And for those who want a great word, the extra Calvinisticum uh, talks about how Jesus, even when he became the God-man, still remained God and still everywhere in the universe, even though he was located in the manger in Bethlehem. Now that gets beyond our pay grade today, so we're not going to go into that. But it's an amazing thing when you think about this. This is not Jesus taking off something. Kenosis is the word that means emptying. It's taking something to himself. And the God-man takes human nature, and he does that not like you go on a Ferris wheel or, you know, uh, 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 what is it that goes up and down a roller coaster for thrills. Why did he do that? Because the plan from the very beginning is that everybody has messed up along the way. It's going to take somebody that's going to succeed. This is the one that's going to pull it off. This is the one that's going to accomplish what no one else has been able to accomplish. The Christological controversy. Who is Christ? That's what we're talking about. 
And I actually sent out a, uh, a sheet yesterday, if you want to look at it, and it has all of these names, the Ebionites, the Elogi, the Gnostics, the Modalistic Monarchians, the Dynamic Monarchians, the Eutychians, the Nestorians, you know. And, and the interesting thing is if you take those five things, the true deity, true humanity, hypostatic union, unipersonality, and they will deny and affirm them in different combinations. And so in the early church, it was huge in trying to figure out what, what is this? How does God become man? And there were many heresies uh, that developed, and actually the heresies were a good thing because it forced the church to think through this and put together a clear conception of what this means. And so you had, and I sent this out as well, you have the Apostles' Creed. Just saying part of it. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in the Virgin Mary. That was an early way to kind of capture that. You have the Nicene Creed. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. That was one of the early controversies that, that, that Jesus had a beginning. That takes away a sense of deity. Being of one substance with the Father, and it goes on. You have the Council of Ephesus, Ephesus in, in 431. I want to read a little bit of the Athanasian Creed. It's necessary to everlasting salvation. When we went through the section on the Trinity, we talked about this. It's necessary to everlasting salvation that he believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the world's, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world, perfect God, perfect man, of a reasonable soul, human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father, and it goes on. You see, they're struggling to capture these ideas. And then the Council of Chalcedon, 451. The Son of God is one and the same person with Jesus Christ, very God and very man. Again, we could take a, a lesson on each one of those and walk through them, but what they're endeavoring to do is affirm what the Scripture is saying and trying to put that in ways that it makes sense to us. I mean, just stop and think. The, the, one of the huge central truths is the distinction between the Creator and the creature. God as Creator is not a, just a bigger us. Is a totally different, you know, uh, uh, realm. I, I don't even know how to explain that. Creator isn't anything like creatures. That's who we are. You know, and us trying to figure this out is like a cockroach trying to figure out the pressures inside a, uh, an automatic transmission and the various uh, things that are part of that. You know... I mean, I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I have no idea how all those things work. I could take one apart. I might even put it back together again, but you wouldn't want to put it in your car, okay? Well, it's in some sense, it's like this. As we try to grasp this, 
there's so much here that you stand back in awe and say, you know what, it's over our pay grade. But God wants us to know something about that. He wants us to celebrate all that it means. Now, at the heart of this, we see this. David the king is going to have a son that's going to reign on his throne. He's going to reign forever. That was the promise of 2 Samuel. That's what Isaiah said. That's what the angel said to Mary. John the Baptist. Here's this guy. I would have loved to have seen this. You remember how he was dressed? Leather. You know, uh, had this belt around him. Uh, What did he eat? Yeah, grasshoppers and wild honey, and he came out of the wilderness and he turned everything upside down. You know what the central message was? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is that? Because the king showed up. Okay, the king's here. Hasn't yet manifested himself yet, but he's here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, in his ministry, what did he say? kingdom of heaven is here. Not just coming, it's here because the king is here. I can't tell you how central this idea of the kingdom of God is to everything. Now, we're going to see that in a minute. John 3, remember what Jesus said? Except you are born again, you will never see or enter into the kingdom of God. And so this sense that God has always been king, God put a king, remember he said to Abraham, kings are going to come from you. It's pointing forward to this king who's going to sit forever and establish a kingdom that is going to overcome every kind of opposition that you can imagine. It is the kingdom of God. You go through the scripture, one time take a concordance. Just read those passages. Let them sink in. We're going to look at a couple of them. Well, you have the crucifixion. You remember uh, uh, when they crucified Jesus? We don't have time to go to the passage. John chapter 19. Pilate put a sign up over him. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. You remember what the religious leader said? Don't say that. Said He said, I'm king of the Jews. I love Pilate. This is one place Pilate was right. He said, you know, what I've written, I've written. It's going to stay there. And again, you see, God as the dramatic producer, director, he's going to put, you can't miss it. God is telling you, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and the cross was at the center of everything. We can't begin to open that up fully. Paul Preach the kingdom. Uh, uh, I want to go to a couple of passages of scripture in uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verse 8. It says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Okay, that's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. You remember the the sower and the seed and the parables that Jesus used that that the seed is the word of God? The very last thing uh, uh, in in Acts, Acts chapter 28, you know, Paul is now in Rome. He's uh, being held under house arrest. 
And verse 23 says, They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came to even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. These are the Jews. From morning till evening he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. That, that's what we've been doing. We've been looking at Moses, the prophets, and so forth. Some were convinced, some weren't. If you go to the very last verse in, uh, in Acts, Acts 28:31, boldly and without hindrance he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, again, it'll take a month for us to go through uh, Revelation 19. You remember Revelation 19? Here Jesus comes on a th- rider on the white horse. Got a name written that nobody knows but he himself. And he has a sword proceeding out of his mouth, and he has a title. What's the title? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation is the return of the king. If you like uh, the uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, not the Chronicles of Narnia, the uh, uh, Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings, the last volume is the return of the king. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's all about the king. Well, how does this king conquer? You know, we see this picture in Revelation 19 of him coming finally with his army to destroy But that's not how the battle was won originally. How was it run? Won. It was won through redemption. It was not, I've often said, if I had my choice, I'd pick, uh, 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 what was it, uh, uh, Rocky, uh, you know, Sylvester Stallone, what was it that he played? Oh, I can't think of the word I'm thinking. But anyhow, you know, you want somebody who's going to come in and break some noses and and break some necks and and be a macho kind of king. That's what they're expecting. How did Jesus win this battle? It wasn't in a duel. It was in him sacrificing himself on the cross. Redemption is accomplished not with an act of power. It's accomplished with an act of sacrifice. And there on the cross, redemption is accomplished. I put the picture of Murray's book up there, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Uh, 55 years ago, I got that book in my hand, and I wouldn't give that up for anything. What a great message in setting that forth. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. And you have the picture of the one who's going to suffer for us. Remember the Last Supper? This is taking the Passover and transforming it uh, into now this new covenant meal with the people of God. This is my body. This is my blood. And all that's involved in that. I just read through the Garden of Gethsemane takes his disciples and says, watch here and pray, lest you enter into temptation. He goes to pray, prays with such intensity, the sweat are like drops of blood falling to the ground. They're asleep. And what does he say? Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But what? Not my will, but your will be done. 
but just take some time and let that so this is the god man this is the one that has the power to turn them into crispy critters immediately and instead he lays down his life you have the arrest and trial you talk about miscarriage of justice everything about it was wrong why they do it in the middle of the night because they knew it would never uh, uh, pass the, you know, the taste test and the daylight. The crucifixion and death. I read that this morning in my Bible reading in Luke 23. Um, he dies. The sixth hour, everything grows dark. The temple, you know, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. I love to see this part. Bodies of dead people rising and showed up. You know, your Aunt Carla, your, your Uncle James, your, you know, they're, they're showing up saying, how you doing? You know, it's not like Marley's ghost. It's something altogether different than that. Here is something that's happening beyond our ability to understand. But Jesus died. And you notice when it says he cried out with a great voice and he gave up his spirit. You know why it says that? He wasn't exhausted and weird. He wasn't at the point that he couldn't. That's what normally happened. You know, uh, uh, crucifixion drains your, the body's ability to take in lungs and you officiate. Jesus went out. Remember, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. God's given me power to lay it down and take it again. And then they take him and bear him. Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, he comes, gets the body, they put it quickly in the tomb, and then they're planning after the Sabbath day, they have to rest, they're going to go get the tomb uh, and, and finish the burial process. And poor Thomas, doubting Thomas, let me ask you, how many of the disciples were there early on Sunday morning waiting to see the resurrected Christ? How many of them were there? How many of you would have been there? I would have been sleeping in along with you, but the women were there. And what do they see? They see the angel, you know, and uh, they say, listen, the one you're looking for, he's not here, he's risen. That's not the end of the story, you know. Uh, uh, he appears to many. I, I wish we had time to look at this in John 20, 1 Corinthians 15. It wasn't just a, a one-time thing. Then he ascends into heaven. The ascension does not get the, the airtime it deserves to understand what's happening. Luke is the only one that really records this. Luke 24, Acts chapter 1. Uh, when I was at the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton years ago, uh, as you go through the uh, 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 kind of a history of Billy Graham and that, you come out at the end and it, it has, you kind of walk through the tomb, and then you come to this area. I don't know if any of you have ever been there. And then there's this area, it's maybe 30 or 40 feet high and 30 feet wide. It is this bright blue sky and some clouds, and it's saying, Why stand you gazing into heaven? The one who was taken up from you will come in like manner. Now go out and tell that message. And that's really what we need to do, that Jesus ascends into heaven. Now what does that mean? This is often not appreciated, and so I want to I make this point. When it says, it is finished, when Jesus says, it is finished, he's not talking about the whole work of redemption, he's talking about his death. 
Something has to happen. When they took the blood of the lamb, that wasn't the work of atonement. What did they have to do with the blood? They had to take and sprinkle it on the altar. So what does Jesus have to do? He can't go to the temple and present his blood. He goes through the heavens into the temple in God's presence, the one that the, the one on earth is a copy of, and there he presents his blood. There is when it's finished. And what happens? Look at this. I love this. He finishes redemption and he sits down. We don't have time to look at the passages in Hebrew, but I love that. The Old Testament priests, they're constantly up and doing the sacrifices over and over and over. Why? Because they don't accomplish anything. But what did Jesus do? After one sacrifice, he sat down. You know what we call that? The session of Christ. He is now seated at the right hand of God. All authority in heaven and in earth is conferred to him, and now he rules from heaven, King of kings and Lord of lords. How do we begin to appreciate that? And, and man, it, it, it's hard to, to, to get the full sense of what God is doing here but what this is all about, we've been tracking these covenants. Jesus is going to inaugurate a new covenant. Jesus was born under the Mosaic Covenant. Galatians tells us that, born under the law. And he was subject to the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. But by his blood, he ratified and mediated the new covenant by his sacrifice and going into heaven and offering that to God. And because God was pleased, he accomplished the work that Adam failed, Noah failed, Abraham failed, Moses failed, David failed. Everybody along the way failed, but Jesus didn't. He succeeded and he poured out his blood and it was accepted by God and now he is seated at the right hand of God at the throne of grace. Now, next week, this is great stuff, but it gets even better next week. The Holy Spirit, Acts 2, this tongues of fire, rushing mighty wind. Baptists have a hard time with this, so you may not want to come next week because we're going to get a little excited about what happens when the Spirit comes and people are hearing the message of the gospel and that inaugurates the new covenant. Jesus has mediated and ratified it. Now it actually is inaugurated. It comes into effect. The new covenant is the final and the eternal covenant that shapes the life of God's people, both Jew and Gentile. Again, uh, take some time in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. In fact, we're, we're, we're over. Uh, one day I'm going to finish early, uh, but don't hold your breath, okay? Uh, you know what? All you're going to do is go out and jab, you know, jaw with people out there anyhow. Uh, 
Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 is probably better than any conversation you're going to have out there. Uh, And anyhow, chapter 8, how wonderful is this? Verse 7, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming, I'll make a new covenant. And he repeats that. You go to chapter 9, and he contrasts the old covenant and the sacrifices. Verse 11, when Christ came as priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not man-made, not part of creation. He didn't enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Blood of bulls and goats. They're not going to get the job done. How much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences for acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Go down to 9.24. Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary as only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Wow. I want to tell you, friends. Now, you can read some of this stuff and appreciate it, but if you haven't tracked through Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and all the rest, you won't appreciate what's happening here. If we're going to tell the gospel, we have to tell them what led to this so we begin to see Jesus Christ, not sweet baby Jesus in the cradle, but King of kings and Lord of lords, the sacrifice, the one who is our great high priest, the one who's inaugurated a new covenant every time we take the Lord's table. What do we say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And friends, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the foundation of life. Jesus was raised, and now he offers to us communion, ongoing living communion. Come boldly to the throne of grace. You know, that's the same place where Jesus is sitting, you know, beside the throne of God. I love what Paul said in Galatians. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I. But Christ lives in me, and the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, that's the, you know, that's the opportunity that we have to know and to love and to commune with the God-man, Theanthropos, that came down and died and ascended into heaven and now is coming back And I'll tell you, when he comes back the second time, not going to be like the first time, not going to be incognito in many respects, he's going to come with the power and glory of God, and he's going to finish it, and we're going to enter into what we were designed to be in from the beginning. But sin has messed that all up. And friends, we have great hope. Every day that we move forward, Satan's time is running out. He's feeling the pressure. Every day we live, we're getting closer to the time that Jesus comes back in power and great glory. And when you listen to the news and what's happening in the world and politics, keep this in mind. 
this is bigger, you know, than all of the other stuff that's going on. This is going to determine and frame that. Well, let's pray together. Father, we ask today that you would give to us a fresh appreciation of the majesty, uh, the humility, the accomplishment of Jesus coming and taking human flesh and suffering in our place and being buried and being raised and ascending into heaven and now sitting there at the throne of glory as we wait for his parousia, his return, his, his glorious uh, manifestation that we read about in uh, Revelation 19. Father, I, I pray that this will be more than just information uh, that will uh, help us to impress our friends, but Lord, that this would be truth that would seep into our heart, that would deepen our love for Christ, and strengthen our worship. So even as we go into the worship uh, uh, time this morning, or take these things to mold our heart that we might see Christ afresh. Just as Paul said, uh, just as the writer of Hebrews said, you know, consider the great high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. Lord, enable us to keep our minds set on him and not be distracted by all the other things going on. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.